Hello, and welcome to the New York Beef Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Rodriguez, registered dietitian nutritionist. The New York Beef Banter Podcast was created by the New York Beef Council as a way to connect consumers with beef industry experts to give you a spot at the fence post to a candid and transparent conversation about beef and what it takes to put it on your plate. Now today I'm very excited to have a conversation about a hot topic and that is antibiotic usage. So for this conversation today, I'm so excited to welcome JJ Jones, the executive director of the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, as well as Dr. Tim Dennis, a retired veterinarian and beef producer, as well as a partner in the Finger Lakes Cattle company. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure to have you. So I will open up to either. Yay. (laughs) I will open up to either one of you. This is obviously a hot topic. And as a dietitian, I get a lot of questions about the safety of antibiotics and what are, what is the role in the industry? So if we could just kind of start there, what is the role of antibiotic use in the beef industry? Why is it important? How is it administered? All of those things, let's get into it. And JJ, I'm gonna start with you. Sure, so obviously as farmers and ranchers and veterinarians are caring for livestock on a day-to-day basis to be part of a, a nutritious and safe food supply, they need a plethora of tools in their toolbox to ensure that those animals are living the best life that they can. And just like any uh, mammal or organism, every so often animals come down with an infection that requires treatment. And so uh, beyond typically good husbandry practices, at times we do need to use antibiotics to fight an infection or a disease. And so we want to make sure that farmers and ranchers and veterinarians have access to that that tool, if you will, so that they can responsibly care for their livestock as they're producing safe, wholesome, affordable meat, poultry, and eggs. And so that's really um, the the high level reason why uh, antibiotics are used in animal agriculture on a day-to-day basis. And of course, just like in human health or plant health, there's a uh, a myriad of research and uh, oversight that goes into the use of those those tools as well. But at the bottom line is to make sure that we do have a safe, wholesome food supply while we're ensuring um, animal welfare and, and good animal husbandry practices. Thank you for that. And I just want to cut to the chase on a big question before we get into some details. Long story short, are there antibiotics in beef? No. So that is probably one of the the biggest misconceptions is that when you administer an antibiotic to an animal, that that antibiotic is still in the food that that animal produces. And one of the rules and regulations that farmers and ranchers and veterinarians and Dr. Dennis can speak to this much more intimately than I can uh, take very seriously are what we call withdrawal periods. So that is um, a scientific validated uh, time that we know the body of that animal metabolizes that antibiotic throughout their system. And so just like if you or I take an antibiotic for an infection, um, we need to take the the right dose for the right time and the right antibiotic. Um, There's a certain period of time that that antibiotic would still 
be residual in our body, but at a certain point, um, it's passed through our body. And so in a similar fashion that happens with the animals so that by the time you and I go to the grocery store and, and pick up a package of meat or, or a gallon of milk or a dozen eggs, uh, we're ensured that there are no antibiotics in that product. And not only do we have the withdrawal periods that tell us that, but then there's also uh, robust testing to ensure that if for some reason animal goes into the supply chain before a withdrawal period, that it's caught before it ever gets to your eyes, uh, a kitchen or dinner table. Excellent. So I, I have a few more specific questions, but you mentioned the withdrawal times. You mentioned how those are developed and who is all involved with that? Is it the FDA? Is it the USDA? Who are some of the players in developing those times? So there's definitely, as you mentioned, Nicole, the, the FDA and USDA on the government side. So they're um, ensuring that they're looking at the scientific data that uh, uh farmers and ranchers and, and meat processors or protein processors are following um, the rules and regulations that are set out by the government. But then you also have farmers and ranchers and veterinarians who uh, they want to make sure that they're producing and providing a safe, wholesome product. And so they're going to have their own checks and balances in place in their veterinary practice or on their farmer ranch. Um, so that's the nice thing is that there's also levels of of checks and balances, if you will. So obviously there is the government's role um, from FDA and USDA when it comes to animal protein, but then there's also the farmers and ranchers and veterinarians who are that first line of defense, if you will, to ensure that antibiotics are being used responsibly as they produce a safe, wholesome product that also ensures the highest standards of animal welfare and, and animal husbandry. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned if there's if there's an animal that needs to be cared for, this is really just another tool in the toolbox. And it's not, it's it's really not dissimilar to a parent wanting to treat a sick child in a lot of ways, right? So as a parent, I'm kind of that first line of defense and I see something's wrong. And the next line of defense is of course a, a doctor and in the case of cattle, a veterinarian. And there are all of those checks and balances to make sure that we're doing the right, right thing by whoever or whatever animal it is we're trying to treat. So I love those different comparisons, but I do get a lot of questions on what is the actual difference because, and Dr. Dr. Dennis, this might be a question more appropriate for you. There's a lot of misconception about antibiotics being used in let's say cattle specifically. How is it similar or different to antibiotic treatment in humans where is there a line? Is there some kind of overlap? Is, is the cattle usage of antibiotics, is that trickling over into resistance in humans, right? So I want to dive into some of that. So let's start. Why do you, what antibiotics do you use in cattle? Why do you use them? And what are the amounts comparatively as well? Dr. Dennis. Okay, well, I'll, I'll lead off on, on this a little bit, and uh, I'm sure JJ can uh, uh, fill in the gaps uh, because he's, he's the policy expert, uh, and I'm uh, the boots on the grounds guy. <laughs> uh, well, so important. So there's a, yes, there's uh, some things that I wanted to fill in with this discussion as far as it's gone, and uh, uh, how, how and when do antibiotics get used uh, in, in today's uh, veterinary practice and today's animal husbandry practice? Uh, and 
like a lot of other things, uh, whether it's herbicides, pesticides, antibiotics, um, the, the goal is the least use possible, obviously. Uh, but also, uh, we do believe uh, in working with our, our clients and our patients uh, that animal welfare, welfare, as JJ mentioned, is, is, is of utmost. We care for animals. Uh, we don't want them to get sick. We don't want them to need antibiotics. And we spend a lot of time uh, developing animal husbandry practices, housing practices, uh, vaccination practices uh, to avoid that. But no matter how well you do, there will be sick animals. And it certainly is an animal welfare issue that those animals be treated. Now, what happens when an animal is determined to be, need to be treated and how is that determined? Uh, in my uh, experience, I mostly worked in practice with small and medium-sized uh, dairy herds. And uh, of course, I am a beef producer and with small and medium-sized beef herds. So uh, in the uh, latter years of my practice, we developed uh, three ring binders with uh, protocols in place for, to assist our producers and the herdsmen, the people that work with the cattle, uh, to go through a chain of uh, decisions, a decision tree as to when an antibiotic should be used. And then, of course, the question gets back to you, Nicole, which antibiotic and how much? And uh, all of those things uh, fall into uh, what uh, JJ was referring to in uh, avoiding residues. Um, so it, along with this uh, uh, protocol, of course, in this notebook, or it may be in a laptop or a, 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 note top, a notebook type computer, um, or a handheld device, um, re records of usage. That is absolutely essential, that each time antibiotics are used, that there are the dosage, the identity of the animal, and the amount uh, uh, should be recorded, along with right exactly at that time, when will this animal, according to proper dosage, uh, proper usage, uh, be clear of, of the antibiotic. So if it needs to enter the food chain, it will. We have spent a lot of time in our practice, when I was in practice, um, reinforcing the point to our producers that they were food producers. The end product was food. It wasn't uh, necessarily a, a live animal or, or a tanker of milk. Uh, it was food. Uh, so that's kind of a high level look at how things could and should be done. And we really insisted uh, in the, with this in our practice that we had a, a written agreement with our producers that they would uh, follow our protocols, that they would follow the uh, withholding times. And uh, we also had responsibility within that uh, a group written agreement to be available uh, to assist them in those decisions. I'm a long-winded guy. I'll stop. I hope I've touched on where you wanted to go. No, absolutely. And just a couple of points there. So if I have this correct, it, it's, it doesn't behoove the producer in any way to be giving extra antibiotic to an animal, right? So there's obviously, there's this withdrawal time, but also 
these products to some extent are costly and judicious use of these products would probably be in the best interest of the person who's administering them. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, uh, particularly, uh, we are fortunate to have uh, some uh, fairly new antibiotics in our in our toolbox, uh, particularly to deal with bovine respiratory disease. Uh, and uh, they're very effective. They're very good, but they're also very expensive uh, to the point where to treat a animal of uh, medium or large size could cost. Uh, uh, one treatment could be fifty or a hundred dollars, uh, and so certainly you don't want to waste that kind of thing, and you certainly don't want to drop one of those bottles of antibiotics. Oh, <laughs> uh, and you need to keep track of your inventory. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, uh, and the other point to go along with that is overdosage uh, or extended usage beyond the recommended. Uh, then becomes what's called extra label usage. And uh, sometimes we just don't know exactly how long that withholding period should be. Uh, so uh, it's important that we know what we used and how long we used it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, JJ, maybe you can speak to this. Are, so are the antibiotics that are administered to animals the same that are administered to humans. And if we could speak specifically about cattle, of course, that would be helpful. And maybe some of the dosage differences as well. Sure, so um, the, the easy answer to that question, Nicole, is it depends. And what I mean by that is uh, there are different classes and types of antibiotics um, that is classified by the Food and Drug Administration. And the reason that's important is there are some um, types or classes of antibiotics that can be used in multiple species, humans included. So it might be used in cattle and humans or uh, pigs and poultry and, and fish. Um, but then there's other classes and types of antibiotics that are very species specific. And so one of the things, especially as we've learned more about how to be better stewards of antibiotics in human health and animal health and environmental health is determining if we can use what are deemed non-medically important antibiotics in animal agriculture versus human health. So we want to try to preserve the effectiveness of these antibiotics uh, for different species. And one of the things that we really subscribe to at the National Institute for Animal Agriculture is the One Health model, that we really need to look at antibiotic stewardship and the antibiotic resistance conversations as one health. So that's human, animal, and environmental health. And so that's a big um, uh, uh, key learning that we've had over the last several decades and we continue to learn about is how do we preserve those antibiotics that are important for human health as much as possible while also balancing that with ensuring as Dr. Dennis was talking about the highest standards of animal welfare and animal husbandry. And so that's one a nuance of why I say it depends. There are antibiotics that are used in both humans and uh, livestock or farm animals, but then there are antibiotics that are specific to each sector. When it comes to dosage, the second part of your question, oftentimes, and again, Dr. Dennis would know the nuances of this, uh, like the back of his hand, um, oftentimes an antibiotic is dis uh, dispensed or used by, uh, in association with the, the weight of the patient, if you will. Right. And so obviously the amount of antibiotic it takes to treat me at 100 and 
85-ish pounds, uh, maybe a few more after the holidays, um, <laughs> is much different than it would take to treat a 1,200 pound steer um, that is being finished to go into our food supply. And so, um, yes, while you would use more antibiotics for that steer that becomes ill, as opposed to myself, if I were to become ill, it's in proportion to our weight in order to ensure that um, the, and Dr. Dennis could probably say this better than I can, but I know it's a lot of veterinarians always talk about, you know, you want to use the right antibiotic uh, in the right dosage at the right time to treat the right illness. And so that's something that whether it's a veterinarian or a medical doctor, they're always trying to balance as they're treating their patients is, is using those, those four R's or the four rights, if you will. So I'm hearing the balance. I'm hearing that it's a one health approach, right? That all of the, that these guidelines and usages and dosages that they take into consider the health of the animal, the health of humans, the health of the environment as a whole. But I think there is still, there is still a lot of confusion surrounding now I'm, I'm hearing you and hearing, okay, it's very clear that there are not actual antibiotics in the meat that we consume as humans, right? As, cons as consumers. So where can we clear up the confusion about there being antibiotic resistance in humans due to the usage of antibiotic usage in these animals? So the basic to me, and, and I have to put the caveat, I'm a scientist by formal yeah. training. And so I tend to think in scientific terms and there's two things. One is science is defined best. I heard this on NPR a, a few years ago as organized skepticism. Mm -hmm. So we're always seeking better solutions, better options, even to uh, theories or ideas that have been validated by science maybe for, for decades. And so one of the things we do know from a scientific perspective is that any organism is trying to survive. And so unfortunately, the bacteria that we treat with antibiotics, they are also trying to survive. So they're always going to evolve or mutate to become resistant uh, in order to survive. And so that's something that we're always working on. And whether it's using antibiotics in human health or animal health or in environmental health, every time we use an antibiotic, um, not significantly, but every time we are contributing to antibiotic resistance. And so that's why it's important to ensure that again, we use the right dosage for the right amount of time so that we can follow the, the science, if you will, of, of how to be good stewards of these antibiotics. So, so that's really, you know, antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance is just an evolutionary fact um, that's going to happen, whether we're using antibiotics in animal health or human health. Uh, so, so that's something that uh, we would hope more and more of us would recognize uh, as opposed to simply saying, oh, if we stop using antibiotics here, it will completely stop the, the development of antimicrobial resistance. Um, completely stopping antimicrobial resistance is something that's uh, virtually impossible. I, it, I know you should never say never, but simply not using antibiotics to treat an animal when it's sick is not going to stop antibiotic resistance in human health. That's a great explanation. Thank you so much for that. And something else I'm picking up on there, it's, it sounds like 
when we're examining these protocols and trying to make them better, it sounds like it's just continuous improvement. It sounds like it's something that's really important to the industry as far as antibiotics are concerned. So JJ, like what does that term continuous improvement mean to you and to your organization in this arena? So continuous improvement to us means that we're going to be visionary of how do we continue to produce in our space, safe, wholesome, affordable food for um, our own families, our neighbors across the street and our neighbors around the world. But we're going to do that while we also have a good understanding of what can we learn from our past? Where did we make previous mistakes? So for example, if you look back at the use of antibiotics 50 or 60 years ago, uh, we were using them in ways that we shouldn't have. Now, at that time, we thought, hey, this is good. We can use them this way and everything's fine. But as we continued to learn, as we looked at the science and the data, we figured out that we weren't using them as responsibly as we could. And so therefore, um, we changed the, the protocols and the way we would use antibiotics on the farm, just as, um, as I visited with uh, medical doctors and nurses and other practitioners in human health. Um, we've learned the same thing in human health, that there were things maybe we were doing using antibiotics. One of the biggest areas in human health that I hear about all the time is, unfortunately, many of us, when we go to the doctor, we always want to walk out of our doctor's office with a prescription, even when we have a viral infection. And antibiotics don't work on a virus. That's where you need a vaccine. And so just like in human health, we're learning that we can't always use antibiotics. We're learning that in animal health as well, that there are times that antibiotics are the best tool in our toolbox, but there's other times that it may be changing the diet or the ration of that animal or changing their housing situation or other animal husbandry practices that would actually be better as opposed to simply using antibiotics uh, um, as the first line of defense. And Again, uh, I'm sure Dr. Dennis in, in his career has seen some of those changes that um, have really improved our overall stewardship. And, and I'd turn it over to him to, to hear what he experienced in his career. Yeah, Dr. Dennis, I would love to hear what continuous improvement means to you from both the veterinarian and producer perspective, because we know the industry as a whole, the beef industry as a whole is really committed overall to continuous improvement in a lot of different ways. So if you can speak to that a bit, we'd love to hear. Well, um, I, I hate to confess my age, but uh, I, my, my career spanned uh, uh, 50 years and I've been retired for 10 years. So we'll go from there. Uh, but uh, I thought about this this morning and uh, JJ, I did watch some of the videos on your website and I'm familiar with your organization um, and I really admire your organization. But uh, I think back to uh, uh, surgical procedures uh, when I was in veterinary college in the 1960s. And, it, and uh, we were trained of course uh, in uh, aseptic uh, surgery uh, and uh, even uh, on large animals as well as uh, uh, companion animals. Uh, but at the end of every surgical procedure, we put the animal on antibiotics. Uh, and uh, that was just uh, what you would call a prophylactic uh, procedure, uh, just in case there was a break in the aseptic uh, technique and uh, some infection got in there. Uh, I've unfortunately in the last 10 years, and maybe you can see I've got a little brace on my arm here. I've had some surgical procedures uh, on myself and uh, 
each one of those, I did not come home with antibiotics. But I know even on the human side, in those days, that that was the case. Uh, so uh, it got to uh, probably the late 70s, early 80s, when we realized that this really was an issue. Uh, I calculated one time, I've done someplace between 10 and 15,000 uh, uh, operations on dairy cows for uh, displaced uh, abomasums of uh, displaced stomachs. Uh, and in the last 20 years, I never gave one of those cows antibiotics because she had surgery. I may have given her antibiotics if she had what we would call a concomitant or some other reason to give antibiotics at the same time. So things have really evolved over that time and constant improvement truly is the case. In the late 60s, as I was graduating, spent most of my career concentrated on dairy production medicine. Uh, one of the things that uh, was truly emphasized was antibiotic treatment in dairy cows uh, of every uh, section of their udder uh, when they ceased uh, production. Now, what we call the dry period. I know this is an educational thing. The dry period is a period of about two months uh, when dairy cows get to go on vacation. Uh, they're in late uh, gestation. Uh, and then when they have their calf, uh, they come back into lactation. So there was uh, uh, right up until very recently, and I think JJ could speak to this if, if need be, uh, that it was a generally accepted practice, GAP, that uh, every section of every udder of every dairy cow would have antibiotics infused into it. Recent years, uh, and very recent, now we are to the point where we have what's called selective dry cow therapy. And I think down the road, that's what it's going to be. It'll go a little bit with what JJ was saying. There has to be a reason to be putting that antibiotic in there, whether it's a, a, a past history of infection or elevated somatic cell count uh, or something along that line. So that is really, I think, a perfect example of uh, constant improvement. And you might think I strayed off when I started talking about dairy medicine. But uh, JJ, I think you'll agree with me. While this is the beef block, um, if you have dairy cows, you have beef cows. Uh, and the ultimate- Even I uh, know that. <laughs> yes, even you know that. And, uh, but some of our uh, uh, people that uh, check in with this may not know the difference between a dairy cow and a beef cow. Uh, but if you have a dairy cow, you have a beef cow. So I feel very comfortable in a beef discussion talking about antibiotic usage in dairy cows. I, again, I'm long-winded. I'll leave it at that. We can fill in the gaps. I love it, Dr. Dennis. So once again, what I'm hearing from both of your perspectives is that when these antibiotics are being administered, it is for a reason. It is recorded. It is really thoughtful. Um, and it's, it's, there's nothing willy nilly about it. It's really intentional. So I, I appreciate hearing that. And I know our listeners will as well on the consumer end. I know we started at the top of this conversation, just clarifying that there are not antibiotics in beef because of this withdrawal withdrawal period, but there are so many labels on our foods today. And one of them is that antibiotic free label, but 
JJ, isn't all meat free of antibiotics given withdrawal time if we're talking beef or any other animal protein? Is that fair to say? It is fair to say that, Nicole, that when you go into a grocery store or sit down at your favorite restaurant and order beef, um, because of the rules and regulations that are put in place by the government, but also because of the great strides that farmers and ranchers and veterinarians take on a daily basis, you can be assured that that, that beef, that steak or hamburger or other pr- uh, cut that you're enjoying is antibiotic free. Um, obviously, uh, there are folks who have production practice preferences. Uh, and so that's where you see a lot of those labels come into play. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, even um, a ranch or a, a, an operation that is producing quote unquote antibiotic free beef from a labeling standpoint, if an animal becomes sick, they actually have a moral obligation to treat that animal, whether it's through um, antibiotics or vaccines or other animal health tools that they have in their toolbox. Um, but across the board, if you sit down and enjoy beef, you know, it's going to be antibiotic free because of Uh, the rules and regulations and practices um, that are in place. So again, whether it's labeled as such or not, all of our beef is indeed antibiotic free. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) One more time for the folks in the back. So another question I get a lot, does antibiotic usage impact the quality or the nutrition of beef in any way? Um. No is the easy answer. It it shouldn't um, because one, like we've talked about from a a quality or a a nutritional standpoint, if you want to look at it from the aspect of um, there aren't residues in the meat, uh, that's um, one uh, thing. But as far as I know, I do not know of any studies um, that have demonstrated that an animal that is, is treated properly with antibiotics when it's necessary versus an animal that um, fortunately has stayed healthy and doesn't need to be treated, um, that there would be any difference in, uh, the quality of that product, the nutritional profile of that product or, or the eating, um, uh, experience of that product. So, um, somebody may know of a study that I'm unfamiliar with, but none come to mind. And, uh, I should mention that our organization has hosted an annual antibiotic symposium for the last uh, decade plus, and we like to uh, think that we bring a lot of the latest and greatest research to the forefront where we can discuss it. And so I'm sure if that study would have been done, uh, that it would have been discussed at our annual symposium, and it's never come across my uh, radar. Yeah, if it was going to come across anyone's radar, I would imagine it would <laughs> that it would be yours. Um, so I recently completed the Beef Quality okay. Assurance Program, and it seems that it's not just That's a matter right. of only the actual antibiotic that's being used, but there's a lot of care taken in what is the injection site? How do you properly administer as far as like a comfort level is concerned as well? Dr. Dennis, do you think you can speak to that a bit? Yes, I I had my hand up because I wanted to follow up with your question and JJ's comments that uh, BQA I think is really the key that there won't be an adverse experience from the use of antibiotics or any other pharmaceuticals or vaccines uh, in uh, food animals. Uh, So, uh, and in food animals at this point, we're talking about bovines or cattle, but uh, the BQA really is uh, the other, I think the, the, the final point at that 
it will be a satisfactory experience. There won't be a, a, a grizzled uh, piece in that uh, uh, ground beef or, or, or chuck steak or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, I, I'll let uh, JJ follow up on that, but I think, I think BQA is, is the final uh, keystone into that satisfactory eating experience. And, and Dr. Dennis, for our listeners who might not be aware, BQA stands for Beef, Beef Quality Assurance. It is a completely voluntary program that 85% of all U.S. Uh, beef ranchers and farmers participate in, and it is really a program designed with continuous improvement in mind of all aspects of raising beef, from care for the environment to veterinarian care um, and transportation, really anything and everything that's involved with getting beef from pasture to plate. So thank you for thank you for mentioning that that BQA is BQA is really key. JJ, did you have something on that as well? No, I was just I was just nodding my head. I know everybody can't see me, but in agreement that yes, be, uh, beef quality assurance, as you both mentioned, has been a phenomenal program that's ensured, as Dr. Dennis was mentioning, that uh, when a farmer or a rancher or a veterinarian does need to administer an antibiotic, they know. Uh, where to inject or how to inject that antibiotic to make sure that it doesn't affect the quality of the product. And then, as you mentioned, Nicole, it extends on into uh, transportation. So as we're moving animals from the farm uh, out to pasture or from the farm to the market, um, that we do so in a low stress uh, uh, manner so that, again, that animal doesn't um, experience something that causes the product coming from it to be uh, lower quality or less uh, than desirable eating experience. Well, JJ and Dr. Dennis, I'm leaving this conversation feeling really empowered about, more empowered, I should say, about the quality of the beef that I'm purchasing wherever I might be purchasing it and knowing that I can rest assured that there are no antibiotics in that beef. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on today that you think is important for our consumer to know? You know, Nicole, the thing that I would say to, to wrap up is um, I grew up on a farm and ranch and, and one of the uh, quotes by our very first president, George Washington, that always resonates me with me is when he talked about farming and ranching being one of the most noble professions, because as, as you and Dr. Dennis have mentioned, you know, farmers and ranchers and veterinarians, uh, they take their, their day seriously when they're caring for the animals that are on their farm or that are their patients. And it's interesting because you care for that animal day in and day out, but at the end of the day, you also know it's going into a food supply that's going to supply a, a safe, affordable, wholesome product for your family, your neighbors, whether they're across the road or around the world. And so uh, as we come up on, on President's Day, I always think about that quote um, from George Washington, that it is one of the most noble professions. And that's why, as you mentioned at the top of the, the podcast, Nicole, I think I have one of the coolest jobs in the world where I get to work with uh, professionals in the animal agriculture supply chain or value chain of our food system and, and make sure that we all have access to high quality animal derived proteins on a daily basis that are part of a healthy diet and are affordable for our families. So thank you to you and, and the New York Beef Council for allowing the National Institute for Animal Agriculture to be part of this conversation today.
We're so glad to have you. Thank you, JJ. Thank you, Dr. Dennis. To everyone listening in, if you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope that you will tune in to the next episode of Beef Banter. Thanks for listening. This podcast is funded by the Beef Checkoff. The Beef Checkoff program was established as part of the 1985 Farm Bill. The Beef Checkoff assesses $1 per head on the sale of live, domestic, and imported cattle, in addition to a comparable assessment on imported beef and beef products. States retain up to 50 cents on the dollar and forward the other 50 cents per head to the Cattlemen's Beef Promotion and Research Board, which administers the National Beef Checkoff program subject to USDA approval. Consumer-focused and producer-directed, CBB and its state Beef Council partners are the marketing organization for the largest segment of the food and fiber industry.